0: a smart city, it's a city that's responsive, it's a city that's efficient, it's a city that uses the data that it has in order to prove the quality and
1: quantity even of the services it delivers on a day-to-day basis. Welcome to the ESRI and the Science of Wear podcast. I'm Amin Rahman Shariki, ESRI Urban Analytics Lead, and I'll be your host for today. You just heard author and former Deputy Mayor of New York City, Stephen Goldsmith, define smart cities as responsive and efficient stewards of their data. Following the lead of retail innovators, city leaders are increasingly looking to data-driven insights and location intelligence to engage with their constituents and serve them better. Here, Esri CMO Mariana Cantor explore how executives seeking to modernize their cities are taking a page from the playbooks of private sector companies like Amazon.
2: Stephen, good morning and thank you for being here with us today.
1: It's good to be here. Thanks so much.
2: Well, we're here because you just published a new book called The New Operating System, The Power of Open, Collaborative, and Distributed Governance. And we would like to understand the compelling case you make for transformation in government. So I'd like to start by asking you, what prompted you to write this book? Uh, Was there a moment in time, a crucial conversation you had? What was the genesis?
0: Well, I've been working in local government either as an official in local government or teaching local government officials for a quarter of a century, and I've never seen as much opportunity for change in that period of time as today. And I run a program at Harvard on innovations in American government, and we give prizes to innovations. But more and more, I notice that the the big disruptive, transformative innovations involve workarounds of the regular government process. We were able to get around this rule. We were able to get around this program. We got label to applied. To, technology through a pilot. I just began to realize what we have is an exciting set of new tools and a really, really old operating system for government.
2: So would you say there's some systemic barriers in the way that the government is structured today that's preventing that, that, that change and that evolution?
0: Right. So the whole approach of government is, is really, it fits perfectly for 1910. I mean, so we've got a system that's based on hierarchies and command and control and vertical agencies and people telling other people what to do. And we have a definition of a a public employee that is one who is compliant, who follows the rules. So we've removed the discretion of our public employees, right? People go into public service because they're committed to the public. And then they do these really small, narrow routines. And so this whole form of government, the procurement side of it, the HR side of it, the job classification side of it, the rural compliance side of it, is all inconsistent with a distributed platform of government that allows workers to see great information that they need, solve problems in front of them, and, and have a sense of accomplishment about it. So it was that observation about the mismatch that led me to write the book.
2: Interesting. So, would you say that a similar type of change is happening in business and is it happening faster for some reason and what could we learn from the private sector into the public sector?
0: Right, it's a really good question. The private sector and the public sector are different in many fundamental ways, but they're also similar. So, the the private sector is driven to deploy technologies more quickly through competitive pressures. And, And in the public sector, Uh, change is more complicated, right? Kudos go to the public sector leader who gets something done in terms of of bold change. It's actually harder, I think, than it is in the private sector. But what we learn from the private sector is that we have these distributed networks. We have technologies that allow us to listen to our customers better and be more responsive to our customers. We have technologies that allow the the, the retail store clerk on the floor or the one filling the Amazon order to be much more responsive. And so what we can learn from the private sector is we can actually make our citizens trust us more by using those tools. And the other thing that's, of course, clear to everybody who's in local or state government is that um, if you try and you fail in the private sector, it, you know, there's expected to be some number of failures for every success. The public sector is much less tolerant of failure, even when well-intentioned.
2: You know, in the private sector, the driving force for this change is obviously the introduction of very powerful technologies. But from the market side, it's the consumer and the desire from the perspective of the business to build intimacy with that consumer through personalization and better, greater service and so on. What are some of the drivers on the government side?
0: Well, that should be one. I mean, you've you've articulated nicely what should be a a, a fundamental driver. We're going to organize government around the needs of our users to wit the residents. That seems pretty straightforward, but we're not. We organize government around the needs of our bureaucrats. I don't even mean bureaucrats in a pejorative sense. I mean bureaucrats in the sense of this is our bureaucracy. Our definition of efficiency is making our bureaucracy operate more efficiently. Right? No retail uh, company would organize around the concept that the goal is to make us more efficient, rather than make us more responsive. So we, we can learn from that as well. And so personalization is one of those things. Uh, predictive analytics is another thing. Why do we wait until something breaks and somebody calls in to complain? Why can't we figure out where it's, what's gonna go wrong before it happens and then fix it? So there's, there's data analytics, there's social networks, there's uh, personalization. All of those tools uh, could lead to an Amazoning of government if we just allow it to.
2: I love that, Amazoning of government. So would you define for us what is this new operating system?
0: Um, We can think about it in in several ways. One is it's centered around UX, right? The user experience of the resident or citizen. How do we organize around that? And then we've also defined that as the UX needs to support the field worker in government, right? So, So if we think about improving responsiveness, then we would care about the user experience of the resident we'd also care about the user experience of the public employee who's interacting with that. Let's call that the retail connection of government, right? And so how do we deliver the uh, a user experience to our field workers whether they be caseworkers, or homeless workers, or police officers or whatever that allows them to solve that problem. So that's the UX piece. Another piece is called acting in time, right? You know, red tape. What is red tape? Red tape is uh, I don't know from you know, almost a century ago, it was, it was tape used to wrap up pieces of paper. That's red tape. We, don't, we shouldn't even have pieces of paper. We just should have digits, right? And the digits allow us to do things in real time, right? Act in real time, get IoT sensor information, react it in, in real time, issue regulations and permits in real time because multiple agencies can work on the same matter at the same time using evidence. So we have a acting in time, we have a user experience, and we have then also this uh, the ecosystem that supports it, the procurement rules, the HR rules and the like. If, if we change all of those, we'll unlock the power of the new technologies. And obviously, that the other piece of that is allowing government to operate horizontally, right? And that's where kind of mapping tools and visualization and spatial activities become particularly important because government needs to operate around a geographic place as well as around a person, right? It, it needs to it needs to understand all of the things it's doing at 10th and Main, not in an agency basis, but in a geographic basis.
2: Speaking of unlocking the power of new technology, it, it all starts with data. And uh, data shows up uh, a lot in your book. Uh, and you point out and emphasize a, a few important ideas around, and you mentioned some of them, collaboration, speed, and trust.
0: Would you talk more about that? Paper systems slow down action because they make a decision dependent on a person in one agency passing a piece of paper up the line or over. So when we move to digital systems, we take time out of decision making. We also improve decision making because people can work on things at the same time. The way we then can collaborate is around these digital tools that are platforms. We live in a a social networked world where all of our conversations are social conversations and and value and problems are solved from that social conversation. Collaboration means we now have platforms. If government thinks of itself as a platform, it allows its employees to see peripherally across the agencies and it allows communities to participate as well. We have those tools. So collaboration and speed go hand in hand with the digital change from to government.
2: Where have you seen some of that evolution play out faster than in other cases? And what are some success examples you can share?
0: Where we see the most pervasive change is where we have a leader, mayor, county executive, governor, who says from the outset, we're going to use digital tools, we're going to be more responsive, we're going to change the way we do things. And secondly, where he or she sets up an office of innovation or a chief data officer who's responsible for kind of putting the data together and solving the problems and then when those two together create a culture that is more pervasive throughout the, throughout the uh, enterprise so you see uh, in LA with Mayor Garcetti having done um, uh, many of those things probably maybe more than anywhere else we can go through one at a time later you see in San Francisco where uh, the city manager and mayor and chief data officer have done very substantial uh, data literacy training throughout the the organization, then you see mid-sized cities like Louisville setting a standard, and probably the one of the most advanced, relatively small cities—not small, but relatively small cities in the country—is South Bend that's done a, a range of things with uh, with tools and community collaboration. Uh, let's start with LA and South Bend because of the difference in sizes. What they have in common are very smart, committed mayors. That's one thing. The second thing they have in common is they have both deeply committed to managing government around a set of performance indicators. If you don't measure it, you don't know what you're doing. The third thing is that they both have set up chief data officers with access to the mayor himself. Right? So there is a, a person responsible for supporting the performance measurement with the data. And the other thing they have in common is that they both have deep university relationships South Bend probably has been able to come further with their relationship just because they have a small staff but the relationship between South Bend and Notre Dame has been particularly important in terms of training fellows in in uh, data science in terms of assigning them to City Hall now after you go through that then obviously the situations are much more complex let's take an example in each In South Bend and they've used Esri tools for this the mapping to me has been a very interesting example. So most of these cities have blight problems, and South Bend was trying to figure out how to better visualize this blight problem so it could intervene. But the thing I thought was particularly interesting in New Orleans and South Bend, and New Orleans has used a similar tool as South Bend, is that they not only mapped the problem and saw how it was spreading, then they asked their communities, right, to take photographs and upload those photographs to the map. So if we think about digital tools, Every resident of a city is a sensor, right? He or she has a phone. They can take pictures. They walk around the city. They're capable of, think of them as augmenting the city's inspection staff and knowing more about local conditions. So the blight maps in South Bend, I think, are a really fascinating example because they use data, they use mapping, but they also use the community to kind of collaborate and understand what was happening, Right. Now, L.A., I think, has used very sophisticated data tools across a, a whole range of activities, right, to to understand um, uh, rent-controlled housing and what's happening to folks who lose access to their housing, to look at the cleanliness of streets by the demo- demography of a particular neighborhood, like is the city acting fairly with respect to the cleanliness standards in lower-income uh, neighborhoods contrasted to others? So that it's the layering on to the, the, the performance standards and the mapping, the analytics to understand what's going on and what the answer might be.
2: There's a really important example uh, of a city, New Orleans, combining data science and location intelligence for the purposes of greater equity. Could you talk about that example a little bit?
0: Yeah, New Orleans' uh, great mayor, uh, uh, when that occurred, Mayor Landrieu, um, had um, a very racially divided city when he took over and made substantial steps forward and was very committed to it. So he constantly kind of challenged his own operating system. And that issue dealt with um, where ambulances are located and where needs are. And they mapped those and then did kind of a racial lens and saw that um, that the emergency services were not located proximate to where the problems are in many of those uh communities of color. And so then they interviewed folks, discovered the problems, figured out where the ambulance should be, changed the responsiveness, triaged some of the 911 calls for help so they could figure out how to intervene in advance, and just changed the delivery and quality of the services as a result.
2: There's a really neat example of problem solving with this new operating system you cite in the book, air quality in Louisville, Kentucky. Could you tell us what happened there and the impact?
0: Right, it's an interesting example, and also I think it's an example that's going to be in some ways copied in a lot of cities. So the simple example in Louisville is if you think about the new operating system, you're asking how to move from routines to predictive for purposes of intervention, right? So instead of treating every case as the same, you try to figure out what's the cause of that 80-20 rule. So why are some folks needing asthma treatment or inhalers more frequently than others? So, uh, and how then would you kind of map and intervene? So, Louisville decided in a pilot project that they would put GPS's on inhalers, and they would then know number of times and where that happened, and then they would look at the environmental factors around those communities that had, you know, high numbers of issues and look for air quality problems more generally, look at traffic patterns, you know, how proximate were heavy traffic patterns to residential areas, and then what else could be done. Chicago has a, an array of things, very expensive air sensors it's put out. I, I can see five years from now with the price of sensors dropping and more ubiquity in the placement of those sensors that we'll be able to determine a number of other health outcomes, which is another example of kind of mapping at its best. So imagine if a community could actually see its air quality compared to other air quality uh, uh, communities, in real time, and then, you, and then health experts then could figure out whether that's driving certain sort of environmental conditions in that neighborhood. This is how we would take the IoT network, the predictive analytics network, and change the way government works. Now, that's not all happening anywhere now, but I think the Louisville example is kind of the tip of the iceberg.
2: I want to talk a little bit about the term smart cities. You write in your book, there is probably no more confusing label in the technology field than smart cities. Why the confusion, and what's your definition?
0: Well, part of the confusion of smart cities is its marketing name used by many companies and many cities. I mean, not too many cities don't want to be known as smart, right? So everybody claims to be smart. So it's got to the point where it doesn't mean very much. And I don't know that we really need a precise definition, but for me, a city becomes a smart city or as the data smart site says. It's a city that's responsive. It's a city that's efficient. It's a city that uses the data that it has, in order to prove the quality and quantity even of the services it delivers on a day-to-day basis. So it's a pervasive attitude about the use of data, IOT, data mining, and data analytics to improve the quality and responsiveness of government.
2: There's a moment in the book that is pretty zen, like sort of almost Nirvana sounding, and I wanted to ask you about it. Uh, There's a line that reads, the hardware, software, and cultural infrastructure of the new city's operating system will allow multiple parties to concurrently speak, listen, and learn about matters important to the quality of life in the community.
0: Is this possible? Okay, look, I've been a district attorney, a mayor, and a deputy mayor, and no one has ever accused me of being Zen-like, so I'm not sure about the question here. I think I have to push back a little bit, so (laughs) I never thought of myself like that. Is it possible? Yes. So let's characterize the average community meeting, right? where the planning department tells the mayor or the deputy mayor, the agency director, kind of how we're going to design the park or what we're going to do in a particular neighborhood. Then that person goes out to community meeting, shows a map on the board, everybody yells. Then the elected official or appointed official goes back and does what they're going to do anyway, right? So they, they're already so steeped in that planning process that they're trying to sell it to the community. Well, that doesn't make any sense, I mean, really, right? The community can't design the park on its own, but the city shouldn't design the park on its own or fill in the blank about what the design experiment is. Maybe it's a zoning matter, right? So now we have collaborative tools, right? I mean, I saw uh, from in Philadelphia, with an Esri tool, I believe, a 3D augmented reality of a planning decision about the massing and permitting of a building, right? So you could actually look with 3D tools, and you could see the potential sizes of the building. You could see what the shadows were on June 11th at 3 p.m. or whatever other day, right? So we have an educated conversation and then people give their opinions and they don't give their opinions in a bilateral way. They have a social conversation. A person says this, another person says this. So we can have these kind of concurrent asynchronous conversations where people learn from each other and then, then you harvest that and it informs the decision. People have participated and the result is better. And It may be a little zen-like, but I think it's possible.
2: As always, it was fascinating
0: talking to you, Stephen. Thank you for being here. Okay, thanks for your questions. I appreciate it.
1: Thanks for listening to the Esri and the Science of Wear podcast. And thanks to Stephen Goldsmith for giving examples of how location intelligence promotes constituent engagement and operational efficiency. To learn more about Esri's point of view on how to make sense of key technology trends like digital transformation and the Internet of Things, visit esri.com forward slash where and esri.com forward slash IOT.